It is November 15th and welcome to the Real Estate for All podcast. This week in real estate news, we are discussing the student debt crisis and how this can affect more than just students, but the economy as a whole. We'll also talk a little bit about stigmatized properties, what you should know about them and some of the opportunities that they could present for people looking for a deal entering into the home buying market. We'll also be discussing 3D printed homes. It's a new thing that is starting to pop up, particularly in Texas, but Could it be a trend that will spread across the rest of the U.S.? Lastly, we'll be discussing Zillow exiting the iBuying market. So Zillow offers is no longer a thing anymore as they wind down their home buying program. So if you remember previous podcasts, uh, one or two podcasts ago, we discussed iBuying in detail and sort of the potential of it and the pluses and minuses. And now we've got Zillow exiting iBuying. So we'll dig a little bit more into the details of what's going on there. So that is what we have for you this week on the Real Estate for All podcast. Getting things kicked off with our first story of the week, we're digging into the impacts of student loan debt on home buying. And much of what we will be talking about are the findings of research and surveys done by the National Association of Realtors. In a September report released by NAR, for the past eight years, NAR has been collecting and examining research to measure the impact of student loan debt on future home buyers. And the report uncovered that student loan debt is one of the most significant hurdles for potential home buyers and their ability to purchase a home. So this is a quote from the vice president of policy and advocacy with the NAR, and he's quoted saying, today's millennials are drowning in student loan debt. Our research, after our research, we can now say with certainty that student loan debt is making it difficult to buy a home. As a millennial, he could have just talked to me and saved the money on all that research because I can definitely say that the ever-increasing prices for post-secondary education, um, college, universities, and that's just for getting your associate or bachelor's degree, not even going on for a master's or doctorate level degree. It, prices are just going up. Long gone are the days where you could get a job and work to pay your way through school. Um, you would need a full time job to do that. And then you can't be a full time student. So it's just student loans have been taking a toll on what home buyers entering into the market are able to do is, is definitely created a hurdle. So according to the research that they have, 51% of student loan holders say their debt delayed them from purchasing a home. I'll pause there for a minute to get your input on this whole student loan debt crisis that we are in right now. Truly, it is a crisis because this this survey began by using the children of NAR uh, employees and they were how they were being affected. So students, the cost of education, as you just mentioned, is, has risen such, to such a level that they need the loans in order to pay for their education. And in order to move the economy forward, we need them to be able to purchase homes. But at the same time, a portion of those that uh, student loan debt is required to be considered in their qualifying for a property. And at the level that they owe for student loan debts, 
it's hard for them to have the income to debt ratio that they need in order to do so. So what we're finding is, is that it is impacting the lives of the individual students, but at the same time, it's impacting the economy as well. And now in the market that we're in right now, those same students are, that are able to qualify for a property are getting outbidded by those cash buyers that have been in the market for a little bit longer and perhaps have been saving a little bit longer. So it is an effect that is not only, you know, affecting the family, the individual, the family, but the, the economy. There are options that need to be weighed to help alleviate some of that debt and costs. But so those are the things that are on the table right now. All right. So as you said, this started with the children of NAR members. Jessica Louts, I believe is how you pronounce her last name, the VP of Demographics and Behavioral Insights with the NAR is quoted saying, we first started researching this topic because of NAR members' children. They couldn't afford a home because of the burden of student loan debt. We knew they weren't alone because there are 40 million Americans holding student loan debt. And she continues saying that half of non-owners say student loan debt is delaying them from buying a home. We asked participants in our research to pretend they paid off their student loan debt. They said the first thing they would invest in is long-term savings and the second would be buying a home. So we know that getting into the home ownership market is something that would be high up their list if these student loans weren't creating that barrier. It's also interesting to know a lot of people think of students as, you know, people in their early 20s, mid 20s, but two thirds of people holding student loans are actually over the age of 30. And there is a demographic component to that as well in terms of the disparity that we see playing out with student loans and the impact that they have on minorities versus the impact that they have on uh, whites in America. We see that there is a less impact on the white population. And then we see a, uh, a split impact on the black and the Hispanic population. We know that home ownership helps to build wealth. People use their home purchase to build wealth. So if they're not able to purchase those homes, then the wealth building remains in a certain population of people and it's not spread across the board, which they have, all parties have the right for home ownership. So we're looking at multifaceted uh, situations with this. It's not just that they can't afford a home, but then we're looking at the trickling effects. So it's a position that has been taken that something has to be done because the finances are being put on the burden of these younger people and they're, <laughs> And the interest rates that they are paying are astronomical on these loans. So it's hard for them to get from up under that debt, paying the minimal amount. The Senior Vice President of Public Policy for the National Fair Housing Alliance, Nikitra Bailey, is quoted saying that today black home ownership is as low as it was when discrimination was legal. And so that is a that's a pretty powerful statement there. Mm -hmm. And she continues on saying that after 20 years of taking out student loans, blacks still owe 90% of the balance of the debt and are more likely to default. Mm -hmm. So you'd imagine you take out a student loan 20 years later, you're still owing 
of that balance is not a position that anyone wants to be in. So um, it's definitely something that needs to be done with that. Uh, and not just with blacks, but across the board. Uh, it's something that's affecting the economy as well, because you've got entire groups of people, entire generations who are slower to enter into the housing market. That affects the economy. That affects income. It affects a lot of things. And with housing being the number one way that a lot of people generate wealth or build wealth, because as you pay your mortgage, you're putting money into your home, which is building equity and um, that whole nine. So there have been a couple of different ideas thrown out about how to help solve the student loan debt crisis. One of them being that we can wipe out student loans. And I'm pretty sure that everybody's heard that before. You know, government just pays off the student loans, wipes it out because a lot of student loans are government backed loans. Mm -hmm. So those loans by the government can just be forgiven. Um, however, that burden would, you know, in essence, fall on the taxpayers. Exactly. And so another option that has been thrown around is that private employers can get more involved with doing you know student loan repayment as part of you know an incentive when you hire someone for a job mm -hmm. there's no easy way to cut into this problem to get it resolved but it's definitely something that needs to be done my personal take is that college is too expensive <laughs> i think that the constant increase in how much it costs for school is not comparable with inflation is not comparable with living expenses. And this is just my personal take on it. How much students pay, how much people pay to go to school to get a degree, I think is, is it just overwhelmingly costs way too much money. And I know, um, at least in reading some articles, part of what aids in that increased cost is subsidies and grants that are given by the government a college, let's say, may have charged, let's just throw out a number, $10,000 for a semester, for whatever it might be, or for a year. But if the government's now giving grants and say, okay, we'll cover, you know, $4,000 of that. And now the college is like, oh, well, we can up our tuition then because there's free money coming from the government. And so that's going to, you know, help boost payments and stuff like that. It, it just keeps adding on top of itself to where now you have these outrageous costs where people are spending twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 a year to go to school to get a degree. And when you get out, you don't have any experience in anything. You got a sheet of paper that says you completed the coursework in order to you know, get the degree, but you don't have any experience in anything. And I think that there's going to be a shift in the coming decade or so where I think that college is going to be looked at differently. Um, I think that having a trade or a skill or having experience on the job is going to be viewed a lot more highly than someone who just has a degree, especially with technology. Now, there are so many different ways that you can learn now. There's no information that you can learn in an institution that you cannot find in a book or that you cannot find online or that you cannot, you know, find in a library or whatever. 
the amount of information that we have at our fingertips, literally on cell phones and, you know, with everything we have access to, I think that people who want to learn whatever it is that they want to become experts in, the information is out there. And I think that I believe that, you know, we're going to have a shift in the way that education is viewed as a whole. And I think that's going to be part of is I believe it's going to have to be part of the solution if we're going to solve this debt crisis, because I don't see institutions saying, OK, we're going to cut our prices in half. So I think it's going to have to be something else where it's like people can learn what they need to learn, whether it's on the job training or whether it's the plethora of resources out there where you can learn information at a much cheaper rate, if not for free, and still get that same knowledge that you would have coming out of college. As well, I think COVID. Post-COVID education, I think it's going to look different than pre-COVID education. With the platform of online classes becoming the norm now, I think you have much larger classes that can achieve the same information. And I think we're going to be, we're going to be streamlined, uh, streamlining a lot when it comes to what is being offered. I know athletics is important and things of that nature, but we're going to have to weigh some options here because to back up, we were saying that 95% of that debt is still owed by the uh, student at the end of 20 years. For a black student, my question is why? Let's say they've never defaulted. Why are they still owing 95%? Is it because they were paying the minimal amount or paying what was comparable to their, their salary, which is often the way it is calculated. Is it because they, the interest is so high that it exceeds anything that they are paying? So all of those factors have to be looked at. To, truly, let's just do right by the, the student. Even making the minimum payment, after 20 years, you should have paid down more than just 5% 5 of that loan, even yeah. making the minimum payment. So mm -hmm. yeah, no, I definitely agree. Yeah. Moving on to our next topic with stigmatized properties. So the National Association of Realtors defines stigmatized property as a property that has been psychologically impacted by an event which occurred or was suspected to have occurred on the property and such an event being one that has no physical impact of any kind. So we're talking about things such as violent crimes, murder, suicide, alleged hauntings, if you've ever heard of a house being haunted, mm -hmm. and, or a, nor a notorious previous owner. So let's say that a drug lord is known to have lived in this place or a serial killer may not have committed any of the killings in the house, but this was the house where he lived or, you know, whatever, someone who is notorious um, and previously owned the property. Stigmatized properties, they, they can be hard to sell. A lot of people, even though they don't cause any physical harm, the fact that someone, a murder was, you know, committed in the property or suicide or house being haunted, though it might not cause physical harm, the hauntings, depending upon what you believe. <laughs> so some people go down that route, but according to the NAR definition, it's not anything that causes physical impact of any kind. So despite the fact that it doesn't cause any physical impact, it's a psychological impact that affects many people. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, I'm living in a house where three people were killed or a mm -hmm. husband killed his wife or, mm -hmm. you know, someone committed suicide or whatever. And that 
that can play with your mind a little bit uh, for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. But for some people who aren't so much bothered by those stigmas, it's a buying opportunity because they're like, oh, well, these houses, oftentimes you will see them below market value because of the stigma that's attached to the property. And that creates an opportunity for someone who wants to get a home at below market value and they're not so much concerned about the stigma. And I know in the business, I'm often asked the questions about stigmas that might be attached to a property. So I encourage you to, and especially sellers, to know what the state, your state law says about disclosing the stigmas that are attached to a particular property. So just be aware in that. I know that in my business working, I have a list of property and I Google the property and I, all of this recreational fighting came up associated to this fight, uh, to this property. So then I began to become a little nervous myself. So I understand where the buyer is coming from. But, uh, so just be, be uh, clear and be wise and educate yourselves on what your uh, state requires you to disclose when it comes to stigmatized properties. 3D printed homes. It is possibly the wave of the future? I don't know. It it, it remains to be seen, but a tiny village on the outskirts uh, in Mexico, a city that I'm going to butcher this name, but Nakajica, I think is how it's pronounced in Mexico. Uh, Builders are creating new homes using an oversized 3D printer. So to build the homes, the printer pours layers of lavacrete, which is a proprietary concrete mix, one after another in long swirls, and one home can be completed in less than 24 hours. And so the homes can nonetheless tolerate extreme conditions and have already withstood a magnitude 7.4 earthquake. And again, this is talking about the homes in this city in Mexico that have been built using a 3D printer. So if you Google 3D printed homes in Mexico, you can find uh, some pictures of what these homes look like. And so investors were watching to see if 3D housing can become a model for building houses elsewhere. Fast forward to today. One company seems to think that 3D printing can be the future. And so one company called Icon, a leader in large scale 3D printing, recently announced a partnership with the home building company Lennar to build the largest community of 3D printed homes in the world. The project will be breaking ground in 2022 in the Austin, Texas area and will include 100 single story homes. Icon's new Austin development will rely on its Vulcan 3D printer and its machine that produ- it's a machine that produces, as stated before, a cement-based mix called Lavacrete. And the company says that Vulcan, which is the name of its printer, produces resilient, energy-efficient homes faster than conventional construction methods with less waste and more design freedom, keeping construction projects on schedule and on budget. So these homes can be as large as 3,000 square feet and last as long and even longer than properties that are built using standard construction methods. So Lavacrete, according to Icon, combined with other cutting edge materials can stand up to extreme temperatures and help keep the homes intact in the event of a natural disaster. So it seems like the material they're using to, pr- 
to build these 3D printed homes, it's a very sturdy, a very durable material. One thing that comes to mind is when they started using hardy plank on homes, vice wood siding. Mm -hmm. And there's so many more benefits that you get with hardy plank. One is the fire rating exactly. that you get with using hardy plank on your home because the materials that go into hardy plank can stand up against that fire unlike wood. One of the things that they're saying is it is definitely cheaper. And it, because it only requires one person to monitor the whole process, you know, so with, but then there's the argument, as you can always imagine, that, well, then that will put people out of, out of work, if that is the case. But we, right now in this market, we're so short on workers in the industry, <laughs> you know, so you got to weigh it out. But then it's a quicker process. And with us having the home shortage uh, that we have now, housing shortage, it's a quicker process to get these properties up and people in them. So Icon has already built two dozen 3D printed homes and structures in the United States and Mexico and claims that this number is the most completed by any construction, any construction tech company. So last summer, for example, a homeless man became the first person to live in a 3D printed home, which Icon built using Vulcan. And the 400 square foot property is in Community is in community First, which is a village in Austin, Texas. So Austin seems to be the area where, or at least Texas seems to be the area or state where a lot of this is starting to develop. And I guess eyeballs will be on it to see how it spreads from there. I, for one, am interested in it. I would have no qualms about living in a 3D printed home if I were in the housing market and that was an option that was out there. You look at the fire rating of it, you look at how strong and durable it is, you look at you know, its ability to stand up to natural disasters and to extreme weather conditions. And if it passes all those tests, why not? Why? If it's more energy efficient, if it's cheaper to build, if it allows you to get homes built quicker, we're currently in a housing crisis right now exactly. and there's a housing shortage. This might be an option in terms of helping us to get some headway made in this housing crisis and eventually see the light at the end of the tunnel where we can exit this housing crisis by building cheaper homes more quickly on a 3D printer. Okay. I'm thinking that um, particularly with a lot of homes that are built, you have to go in, make a design, and then you have to go and get the part to match the design and everything like that. But with a 3D printer, you send the design to the printer and the printer, like it would with anything else that gets printed, just prints out what you need. Which is so amazing because then we don't have waste. You, the, the waste is minimized. There's nothing left over, just as you said. It prints what you need. So we... It, that is better for the environment because what happens to all of the waste now? It goes to the landfill. Mm -hmm. So if there is no waste, that is far better for the environment. Right. So that's another benefit of the 3D homes. I didn't think of that part either with the waste, but no, it's definitely a good point though. Yeah, you have a 3D printer that prints what you need according to the design that you send it in. It also is something that could enable for more customization of a home mm -hmm. because you're just making changes in the design and then sending it to the 3D printer, which is going to print it out rather than all these mass materials that are being bought. And, and it's like, no, we have to build all these cookie cutter homes the same because this is the materials we got for these things. It's like, no, you got a 3D printer that's using this lava crete and 
it's the same material, but you can customize how you want the home to look and we'll just send the design off to the printer. Printer prints just what you need and then your construction people just put the pieces together in place where they need to go and there's your home. Which means you have more architectural options accessible to you. We could get creative, creative here now, whereas opposed we didn't have that. At the same time, possibly saving more money and because in that customization, you can customize it so it's more efficient and possibly retaining more heat and saving money the way it's structured. So it's quite, it really piques my interest. I would definitely welcome that opportunity. For our last story of the week, Zillow is exiting the iBuying market. So Zillow offers was its home buying segment of Zillow's business where as many people know, if you've ever been to Zillow.com, you have a Zestimate, which shows an estimate or what Zillow estimates the value of your property to be. If you wanted to sell your property to Zillow, Zillow would buy your property and then, you know, maybe go in and do a couple fixes and stuff like that and then try to sell it at a profit. This model was not that profitable for Zillow. It actually had about 420, $422 million in losses before taxes <laughs> that resulted as a part of this. So, you know, there, there were some, some numbers in their AI software that wasn't quite getting the price right because there's a slim margin that you're operating on when you're doing iBuying. And we spoke about this a couple weeks wow. ago that you got to get the purchase price right. And the purchase price has to be less than what the current market value is because you have to sell it at a profit. And that's after you calculate the expenses, um, the taxes that you're going to have to pay, the closing costs, all of the other fees. You know, if it's in an HOA, HOA fees. After you calculate all those fees, you still have to make a profit on top of that. And it has to be worth it because you've got people that are working in this division of your business if you are an iBuyer you got to pay their salaries too so it's not just selling the house at a profit but it's selling it at enough of a profit to cover your expenses and cover which would also be considered part of your expenses your manpower the people that are working alongside your ai software to make sure that these homes get sold to make sure that these homes get sold and everything so zillow offers it not been around for has not been around for long Zillow announced that it would be shutting down its Zillow offers and the company also announced that it will be cutting about 2000 jobs, which I believe were all associated with the Zillow offers segment of the business as well. The question becomes, is this an indicator of the health of the iBuying market? Now we talked about it, as you say, a couple of weeks ago, because when Zillow made that announcement at the same time, they also put it out that they were looking for investors to purchase over 7,000 homes that they had acquired. They were trying to get rid of these homes instead of putting them on the market and let them filter back into the market and so that they can be absorbed by buyers. Zillow were asking for investors to come and take these properties. So that in my mindset says, they really are losing here. And so they want to get rid of the, cut the loss as quickly as possible so that they can exit this field. So it's not saying positive things in my, it's not a positive indicator to me 
of what the iBuy market is going to be looking at here soon. One of the reasons I think Zillow may have gone to investors instead of just letting them flow back onto the market, it's cheaper. If you can just have an investor that's got, you know, millions of dollars in the bank or whatever it might be, just come in and take a bunch of houses off your hands for you. That's a much cheaper option rather than all these individual transactions that we now have to oversee and Zillow has to attach agents to who need to get paid commissions for the work that they're doing. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's a lot cheaper, a lot quicker, a lot easier, especially if you have a lot of investors that are just using cash, they can pay cash for a home, it can close a lot quicker and they can, you know, get rid of a lot of this balance that's on their books right now. So it, it is uh, something that Zillow has decided is not, well, the numbers show it's not profitable. Zillow's decided it's not an avenue they want to continue to move in to see if they can even make it profitable. However, as far as the future of iBuying goes, the other three major players in iBuying are still and have already announced that they're still pushing forward with iBuying. OfferPad and Opendoor, mm-hmm. OfferPad and Opendoor, their entire business is, their peer play iBuyers, their entire business is iBuying. Whereas Zillow has a brokerage and they also make money through advertising on their websites. Zillow has the largest visited, you know, real estate website in the country. And there, there are other ways that Zillow makes money. Redfin, the other iBuyer, the other major iBuyer in the market, also has multiple ways that it, you know, makes money as well. They have a brokerage and, you know, they sell advertising space as well on their website. However, Redfin has continue to say they're, they're still in this eye buying thing and they're, you know, continuing to move forward and that is going well for them. And when you're a pure play like OfferPad and Opendoor, that's their entire business. Mm-hmm. So they're focused on trying to find that silver lining where they can make this work and buy the homes at the right price, sell them at the right price, have it be a profitable business and everything. I find it interesting as well is that when Zillow made this announcement, their stock was down about 20%. And then at that same point, Open Door stock was down about 15%, and OfferPass stock was down about 6%. So it'd be interesting to follow it and see if we see an increase since Zillow is now exiting the market and see if we see an increase in their stock for Open Door and Zillow and uh, OfferPad as well to see how that exit affects the others in the field of iBuy. So what I thought was interesting to me was that Zillow has more information than probably any other real estate brokerage out there on homes. So if Zillow's pulling out because they weren't able to figure out, you know, the profitable way forward with iBuying. And they, I believe, have more information than any other brokerage out there with homes. You know, could that have been something that was, you know, an issue with the AI software that they were using with, uh, you know, the Zestimate or whatever it was, the method that they were using to, to purchase these homes at because, It was stated in several articles that a large number of their homes were actually purchased above market value. And 
at some point you have to turn and look at the software that you're using to draw these estimates because you don't have appraisals that you're doing on all these properties that you're purchasing. You're trusting your software and your AI, which is pulling information and data from all these other homes in the area and putting in crunching numbers and then spitting out, oh, this is what it's worth. At some point you have to look at that that system that's in place and say, could it have been that you know there was there was something that needed to be worked with the algorithm and the system because there is so much information, so much data that Zillow has mm -hmm. about all the homes out there on the market. So it was just interesting to me that they weren't able to uh, to make this work. Well, that's all we have for you this week. Please like and subscribe to the podcast and rate us good or bad. Let us know what you like and how we can improve. Cynthia and myself are affiliated with Alert, a licensed real estate brokerage and real estate school. So whether you're looking to buy and sell a home or become a licensed salesperson or broker, we hope you'll give us the opportunity to help you achieve those goals. Just looking for free information, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram or Twitter and visit the website at alertpropertiesre.com. Until next time, keep learning, keep growing.